0: Harper, Neil Campbell, Libby Jones, Ian McDonald, Cat McGuire, Mark Herbert, and Christina Smith. The JogCast, July 2012, Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the JogCast. I'm Libby. I'm joining me in the studio today are Cat, Mark, and Jen. You thought I left
1: again. I just can't leave. <laughs> every time I try to leave I just get sucked back in I think JBCA might be a black hole
2: but you really are leaving this time
1: I really am leaving this time, it's my last day in Manchester and Livy kidnapped me into the studio, I was planning on leaving about half an hour ago she but... thinks
2: she's leaving when we finish recording
1: yes, but she's not <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: no. you're never
0: going to leave Jen I'll be back for the Viver so we'll be doing another job cast then
1: uh, I'll, I'll plan my Viva around the Jogcast yes. so that y- you're recording
0: that day. yeah. As it should be, the Jogcast is definitely the most important thing in the world.
1: But <laughs> well, I did finish my thesis with Jod on.
0: <laughs> I might have to tweet a photo wow. of that. And page. a Jogcast foot- uh
1: <laughs> <laughs> And Libby can't get her words out.
0: And a Jogcast cover art as well was in there, right? Yeah. I'll put a picture on Twitter. So, in the show this time, we have interviews with Dr. Fraser Clark about the European Extremely Large Telescope, Dr. Michelle Collins about dwarf galaxies, and Dr. Lisa Kaltenegger about character- characterizing exoplanets. But first, before all of that, we have Mark talking to Kim Mantz about controlling the Jodrell Bank Telescope in this month's JobBite.
2: Well, for this month's job bite, I'm talking to Kim Mantz, who is one of six people who has perhaps the most important job here at Jodrell Bank Observatory which is that of the telescope controller. So, Kim, could you tell us a
3: bit about what that job entails? I'm glad you think it's a very important job. Uh, I think it's very important as well. What we do is we ensure that all the telescopes that we operate from Jodrell are used safely and efficiently so that the astronomy that the astronomers want done gets done in the best way it possibly can be.
2: So out of the six of you that do that job, there's got to be someone on then all the time looking at the telescope. It's never left unattended.
3: That's right. It's a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week operation. There's always somebody in the control room, even New Year's Eve, which is not the best shift to get. That's <laughs> um, off a small party popper at midnight. Yeah, the, uh, the, the New Year's Eve celebration in the control room is usually pretty downbeat. The man that's been in for the evening... Says, "Happy New Year!" You <laughs> shake hands, and, and, and the nightman comes on. Not exactly a riot, certainly. So, if you were
2: to, um, as I know you wouldn't, if you were to abandon your post and no one was to be there as a the controller, what what sort of things would 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 then unfold potentially?
3: Oh dear! Um, actually, the very idea of of, of abandoning the post that, that's 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 really not in the job description. <laughs> I was just thinking
2: in terms of what, what might happen to the actual telescope.
3: The thing that all controllers fear the most is strong winds. And if the telescope isn't positioned safely to deal with wind loading, we can do serious damage to the structure. So that's the thing we, we have to pay most attention to. And it's one of the reasons why... Well, I was told very early on that they don't like having astronomers... as controllers. Um, I'm not an astronomer. And the reason they don't apparently want astronomers in the control room is they might be too interested in the astronomy and not so interested in the the well-being of the instrument. I see. You want to keep the thing going in the long term rather than get some flash bit of astronomy (laughs) research.
2: So you've got to be dispassionate enough to say... Today it's too windy. We're just going to stop. No observations.
3: Absolutely. There's a there's a phrase in the book of how to be a controller. That's it's all about um, the exercise of authority. And um, essentially, we are instructed to tell people exactly what they can and cannot have in terms of the telescope. So it doesn't matter who it is that that might want to do very very important observation if we consider it's not safe for the instrument or, f- or for the personnel that might happen to be working around the place um, we have the ultimate veto.
2: So that makes the control room something of a sort of privileged place to actually be able to go to then?
3: Um, yes in, in the many years ago um, before long before I started in there it would be very very unlikely that you would find anybody in there apart from the controller and perhaps the director over, over the years there has been some relaxation of access to the room partly because the way we operate is, is considerably different now from, from those days um, there was a lot more physical controlling um, I'm going back to a point before I even started working here at all let alone in the control room
2: so you mean as opposed to sort of digital controls
3: yes the desk the control desk instead of having the sort of screens and and meters that you can see now um, there were actually rotary hand controls so you actually positioned the telescope by operating little hand wheels My goodness! yes you had to be able to reach both sides of the desk from where you were seated Um, if your arms weren't long enough you weren't allowed to do the job Um, at least that's what I was told this this may be apocryphal I, I hope it isn't so uh, things are considerably easier now, the controls that we've got here these days, um, although they don't look completely state-of-the-art because the desk itself doesn't look terribly modern. Um, in fact, the desk itself is the original shell from when the telescope was first operated back in the 1950s. It's the same metal box, but the, the guts of it have been changed um, considerably over the years. And the last major refurbishment was back in 2000, 2001, when not only did we strip all the equipment that was inside the desk out, but we actually dismantled the structure of the desk and took it away to a a local motor paint spray firm and had the whole thing re-sprayed in a colour which is as close to the original that we could find. So that's why it looks... Very much like it did in 1957 when we got the first observations. And yeah,
2: I think we'll have to include a picture actually on the Johncast website because there's still a, a quite a, an array of dials and, and and readouts. So, I mean, as well as controlling the Lovell telescope, what else do you do, you do from that room?
3: We control all the other telescopes which are uh, available for eMerlin merlin as, as it is now. So we've got we've got the Lovell, of course, and then we've got the Mark II, which is at Jodrell. We've also got a 42-foot dish, which is on the roof of this building. And then moving away, we've got a telescope just the other side of Nutsford, a place called Pickmere. Then we go down to Darnell, Then we've got one on the sort of Welsh border near Oswestry, a place called Knockin. Then you go down to Deford in Worcestershire, which incidentally is about Ten miles from where I went to school, that was probably the first real radio telescope that I ever saw. Did you think I want to drive that one day? No, um, <laughs> it was. It's one of those things that never even occurred to me at that stage because it was just like it was just a a big thing in a field. I can remember the first time I saw a picture of the Lovell telescope. And that made on,
2: an impression then.
3: Yeah, it was on the cover of a cover of a children's encyclopedia. It's hard to believe that I saw that then. And if I'd only known at that stage that I'd actually be able to drive it, (laughs) um, it it would would have taken a bit of believing. (laughs) So you've sort of got to have 10 pairs of eyes simultaneously in a way to monitor all these telescopes. Oh, I nearly (laughs) forgot Cambridge as well. We've got one at Cambridge as well. That's (laughs) the furthest away. Yeah, um, luckily, all the information for all of the telescopes, it's not just the astronomy that comes back, but also the position data, which is what I'm concerned with. I'm more concerned about where the where the things are pointing rather than what they're pointing at if you see what I mean. So up until fairly recently the first way of deter- of seeing what each of the telescopes was doing was on one of these monitors over this small monitor that you can see over here. These are being phased out now and replaced by this over here. This this monstrous 46-inch LED display. Oh, yes. We've just started using this, this new operator interface. It's graphically pretty striking, but it does mean that you're perpetually having to relearn how to use stuff because somebody will find somebody will have made it work better. It does make it quite interesting sometimes.
2: Yes. So it's not just sitting there twiddling a few knobs. <laughs> um, no. Uh,
3: well, it, it, the, the strangest thing about about the job is that a lot of the time, we don't appear to do anything. And I quite often worry about this because the impression that you've got somebody sitting in a room surrounded by a load of load of monitors and stuff, apparently just gazing out of the window, um, <laughs> slack-jawed, uh, you know, it doesn't look good. But the thing is that every so often you get a shift where if you don't do exactly the right thing, there's a great potential for the loss of life and limb and and, and millions of pounds worth of equipment mm. um, and that's that's what they pay me for <laughs> is is to is to do the right thing at the right time. I hope I never get it wrong. well, you haven't so far so that's okay but not that I know of <laughs> so um
2: what's it like when uh, occasionally you get invaded by film crews, let's say for Stargazing Live or filming The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, things like that.
3: The most recent outbreak of media mayhem was this year's Stargazing Live. And I didn't see anybody famous. (laughs) Um, I was on the night shift that week. I think I saw the back of Maggie Philbin's head as she left the building. (laughs) Um, But that was pretty much it. Occasionally, you know, occasionally you're in the room... When something's being filmed and you you know you're you're part of it, it's good fun that because you get somebody that you know you meet somebody in the pub and they say I saw you you were on telly last night <laughs> and you, and you, of course you have to shrug and uh, and say oh yes and, but but sometimes you're not even there. I got a bit got a bit grumpy about that this time <laughs> because the control room is my office if you like. Mm. And basically, I, I come in for my shift. And, and My office had been filled up with TV cameras and microphone stands and lights and bits of scenery and all sorts of gubbins. And I had to sit in the middle of it uh, <laughs> and still try and do astronomy. But, um, you know, the, they've ruined my office. <laughs> so, you know, you, it's very easy to get quite uptight about it.
2: So as a last thing, let's um, just imagine instead of everyone being there, it's sort of the middle of the night and you're there on your own and you're looking at the telescope and you're actually operating it and driving it. Mm -hmm. How does that feel?
3: It feels brilliant. It's one of those things that every so often I have to remind myself exactly how much fun I'm having. (laughs) Um, These these huge windows that that give you this, this ridiculously good view of the telescope, if you go out outside those windows and stand on this bit of flat, the flat roof that's just in front of them, and you can look back into the control room, and at half past three in the morning when it's dark, I occasionally do that. I like to go out on the roof and look in, and look into the room. I to say to myself, "I work in there. <laughs> How good is that?" You know, and it's just great. The other thing is when you look out of the window on on this sort of dark and stormy night and you see the telescope the strangest feeling sometimes, it's like it is like being on board some kind of enormous ship have you, have you seen that bit in 2001 it's a long, long there's a lot of long shots in 2001 but there's one of the, the spacecraft, mm. it's a long lingering shot Yes. and you can see there's a big communications dish halfway down the body of the ship yes and it's somehow a bit like that. <laughs> and I, I sort of—it's it's like it is like driving an enormous ship. It still—I've been—I've been, I mean, been doing—I've been doing this particular job for ten years now, and it—you know—it still gets me sometimes how just how how ridiculously grand it is to to do it.
2: Wonderful. Well, on that note, I'll say thank you very much for the interview.
3: No problem.
0: Thanks for that, Mark. Next, Leo spoke to Dr Fraser-Clark about the European Extremely Large Optical Telescope and the Harmony Integral Field Spectrograph.
4: Hi, I'm Leo Hopeville, I'm here at NAM 2012, and I'm about to talk to Fraser-Clark from Oxford University about the European Extremely Large Telescope and the Harmony instrument. So, uh, hi Fraser, thanks for joining us. That's
5: okay, good to speak to you today.
4: Um, so, can you tell us perhaps what the... ELT
5: is, for those of our listeners who don't know. Right, a basic description of the ELT. So the ELT will be, um, in about 10 years' time, the ELT will be built, and it will go on Mount stop in Chile, and the exciting thing about it is it's going to be a 40-meter optical telescope, which is, diameter-wise, five times bigger than any telescope we've got around today. So it's a massive increase in the size of telescope you can have, and in fact, if you Sum up the area with the mirror as the E.L.T. There is more mirror area in the E.L.T. than all other professional telescopes built to date. So it's a huge telescope. That's quite an impressive sort of engineering
4: feat. Do you know what sort of uh, challenges building something like that must take?
5: Well, there's a lot of challenges. You, the, the dome is um, is basically the size of a small football stadium, which is. In itself, not so much of a problem to build. You know, people build lots of football stadiums, but they don't build many football stadiums on on the top of a three thousand meter mountain in the middle of the Atacama Desert, with a roof that has to rotate and open. Um, another big challenge is taking these, taking this mirror to support this mirror. You have to put it in three or four thousand tons of steel, and then you have to make that three or four thousand tons of steel point to less than an arc second and just to give you an idea of the size of an arc second an arc second is the size if you take a two pence piece and you take it about three kilometers away so you have to take three thousand tons of metal and either point it to the left of that two pence piece or to the right of that two pence piece so that is not a trivial thing to do at all so there's lots of engineering challenges in in the ELT. That sounds like uh, quite a
4: feat so can you tell us in what way you're involved with ELT, and
5: I understand you're building the Harmony instrument
4: at Oxford.
5: Yeah, that's right. So, as with all telescopes, what the telescope does is gather light to a point and make a focus, make an image. If you then want to do something with that image, you have to have an instrument which can take that light and process it in some way. And Harmony is an instrument which we have proposed for the ELT, which has been selected as the first spectrograph which is going to go on the ELT. What Harmony will do is it will, it has a It has quite a small field of view, um, about the size of a typical galaxy, a typical high-restricted galaxy, a little bit bigger than that. And it will look at that area of sky, just a small area of sky, take all that light from the telescope that's gathered, split it up into all of its different constituents' wavelengths, it's a spectrograph, split it up into all its different wavelengths, take an image of those different wavelengths and let us study the details of what's happening in the object. Let, Let us study its kinematics, its motions, Uh, its metallicity, what it's made of. It's really got a a huge number of science cases right down from looking at the surfaces of asteroids in our own solar system all the way out through looking for planets around other stars, stars in other galaxies, studying the detailed physics of galaxies throughout the age of the universe right the way up to trying to work out how the first galaxies turned on and how they reionized the universe. And so my part in this... At Oxford, is to work on the implementation of this instrument through the system engineering, working out exactly what we have to build to be able to to do this exciting science and how we turn that into into real bits of optics and metal. And uh, yeah, this is a project we're leading at Oxford. It involves also the UK Astronomy Technology Centre up in Edinburgh. Um, we also have a partnership with two organisations in Spain and one organisation in France. But it's a it's a UK led project, so it's very exciting for the UK to be able to be the country which is going to lead the building of the first spectrographic instrument that's going to go onto this completely revolutionary telescope.
4: So it sounds like we could do some quite interesting science with this instrument, but it sounds like a very complicated sort of thing to build. In what way does it kind of differ from a normal camera that you might stick on the back of a telescope? So you said it sort of it can get a spectrum out for for um, a particular object that you might be pointing it at. It is...
5: Complicated, but not complex. Fundamentally, the the principle of what we're doing is is pretty simple. It's just that the uh, the physical realization of that for such a big telescope means you end up having something that is that is quite big and has many parts in it. So what we do is we take the we take the light from the telescope. We then have quite a fancy bit of optics, which we call an image slicer. Can't really explain that without drawing stuff. Um, but what it does is it takes a rectangular field and then it uses a set of mirrors which all have slightly different angles on them to slice that image up and turn it into a straight line. And then when we have a straight line we pass that into what's called a spectrograph which takes that image and it passes it through in our case a grating, a diffraction grating. And that disperses the light out at different angles of the wavelength. Depending on the wavelength of light it goes through the grating at a slightly different angle and then we use a camera to Image that onto onto a, a effectively a CCD detector.
4: So that's so sort of you're taking an image and you're breaking it down into different slices, and then you're taking a spectrum for each slice. So you must have several CCD cameras around the edge of your detector to kind of pick up a spectrum for each of these slices out of the image. It must then be quite difficult to kind of reconstruct these back into some kind of three-dimensional. Map of the spectrum against the position
5: in the image is that quite a complicated task? Yeah, so that, so you've, you've you've hit it exactly on the head, right? So that's exactly what we what we do in software. We use we use the hardware to break up this three dimensional data of x, y, and wavelength. We use the hardware to break that up onto the detector. In our case, we have eight detectors, um, and then we use software to reconstruct that data from the The image we get out of the detector, we take various calibration data that lets us work out, well, exactly where did... If I see something on a detector here, where did it actually come from in the image? We we put a calibration field in so that we can work out what that transformation is. And then in software, we take the CCD images, chop them up again in software, and then rearrange those so that we end up with what we call a data cube, which is a three-dimensional... Representation of, of, of what we've observed with x in one direction, y in the other direction, and then wavelength in in the third dimension.
4: That's quite an impressive feat, I think, to, to achieve. So, you mentioned earlier a bit about the sort of science goals with this instrument. Are there any particular science goals you're particularly passionate about or interested in
5: uh, approaching with this instrument? Yeah. So I, you know, my ba- my background is in astronomy, and I do. Probably more engineering than I do astronomy. Um, there, there, there's a lot of really exciting science cases. One of the, one of the, one of the nice things with Harmony is that it's not specialised for any specific case, which means it will sort of get to look at the best examples of every object in every class, which is exciting. From my respect, the sort of science that I'm working on is is um, to do with with brown dwarf. The uh, brown dwarf school. Below the lowest mass of star you can get, and they're very cool objects. Both, you know, in in the in the sense that they're quite interesting, and also they're just physically cold. The coldest ones we know of are about the temperature of of this room. Um, and so, harmony is so sensitive in the in the infrared that it'll let us study these very cool objects, and that's quite an exciting one. We can also look for planets around other other nearby stars. We we have the sensitivity to do that. And one that I think is quite interesting is that. We can. We've got enough resolution. We can actually go and look at the the brighter asteroids in the solar system, and we can make a surface map of the asteroid of the surface of those asteroids. And because we've got the spectroscopic information at every point on the asteroids, we can actually hopefully make some sort of composition maps of the surface of an asteroid, which I think will be quite interesting. So we can work out, you know, is is there a big lump of iron over here and a big lump of carbon over here, or is all is all Mashed together and is it very smooth? I think that's quite an interesting prospect with this instrument. So it sounds like there's some opportunities there to sort of
4: map out the galaxy for where, well, map out the solar system for where we're going to go and mine for um, minerals to build our spacecraft. I guess.
5: Well, yeah, I don't know if I, I don't know if we'll be quite at the stage where we can sell mining maps back to uh, back to the mining companies, but maybe that's a commercial offshoot. We'll have to see. Fraser, thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Thanks for that, Leo. Christina spoke to Dr Lisa Kaltenegger about the atmosphere's rocky exoplanets. Now, in this interview, there is a large amount of background noise due to this interview being from the National Astronomy Meeting in 2012. So we're sorry for all that noise. It's surprisingly very hard to make astronomers be quiet.
1: (laughs) Especially (laughs) when you have that many astronomers as we had at Nam this year.
0: I'm here with Dr
1: Lisa Kaltenegger of the Max Planck Institute of Astronomy and Harvard and she just gave a talk about super-Earths and life characterised in the atmosphere of rocky planets. Um, so first
6: of all, what exactly do you mean by super-Earth? So super-Earth, in my definition, is something that's rocky like the Earth, Mm -hmm. but a bit more massive, because these are the planets we are currently finding. Uh, We are not there at the Earth level yet, at least not for the temperate ones that could have water like on the Earth and potentially could have life. Again, we don't know, but the exciting possibility exists. But those super-Earths, so planets that actually have about up to 10 Earth masses, and in terms of radius up to 2 radii, that's from formation theory, Uh, Those ones we already found. We already found a couple. Kepler found uh, lots of samples. Radial velocity from the ground, the wobble technique that is looking for small planets around close by stars, found a couple of it. So we have a handful of those already at the right distance from the star, that there could be liquid water. So this is like the habitable zone, the Goldilocks zone? Absolutely. That's what we call the habitable zone. It's basically, if you think about it, like you standing close to a bonfire. Mm -hmm. If you're too close in, it's too hot. If you're too far out, it's too cold. And there's one region where you're going to be comfy standing there. And that is basically similar, if you think about it, that the habitable zone. At that region, it's not too cold, so water's not going to freeze out. It's not too hot, so water would evaporate and actually get lost to space, what we think happened on Venus. Mm -hmm. It's just a region where it's just warm. Enough that it's not frozen, but that you can have liquid water, and that is a certain distance from the star. Depends on if the star is very hot and big or small and cool. again, bonfire analogy big and hot bonfire. You might want to stand further away. And so, this is what we're concentrating our search on for these planets because if there's liquid water on the surface, A from biology we think that we need liquid water for life that's what biologists actually tell us so I I tend to believe what they tell me and B, uh, it actually allows any gases that life produces to go into the atmosphere because we can't go there. We don't have any spacecrafts to let us fly there. So the only thing we really have is the light that we can catch from these planets that we use our telescopes to catch. And so right now we're working on things like the James Webb telescope, the telescopes coming up after Hubble and ground based on the EELT, the European Extremely Large Telescope, great name, uh, <laughs> that is about both of them are about to go online in about two thousand and eighteen so only a couple of years five to six years and those would give us the first opportunity if we find an earth-like planet close by one of those super earths mm-hmm. to look at these and actually have a look at their atmosphere and that would tell us whether or not they are analog to the earth so they see or they show things like water. Uh, ozone, oxygen, CH4, and CO2. That basically is a cocktail that we see in our own planet. And the combination of oxygen or ozone with a reducing gas like CH4 tells you that a lot of oxygen is being produced. And that is produced on the Earth by biology. And if it's not an incredibly hot planet, we have no other explanation for the huge amount of oxygen because it sticks around while you have reducing gas that it actually reacts with really fast to be produced. So that's right now our fingerprint for habitability. Or it could be something like Venus or Mars, where you see CO2 in the atmosphere, but you don't see water or oxygen. Uh, And so if you think about it, it's very interesting. You have Venus and you have the Earth. And if you have radius and mass of the two, like we get right now for some of these small planets, uh, they look pretty similar, right? Because the mass of Venus and the Earth is roughly the same. And also the radius is. But they provide such a different environment, one being habitable, one not. And so this is why we really need the light from those planets, whether in transit when they go in front of their star and part of the starlight gets filtered through the atmosphere, or or by blocking out the stellar light with a coronograph. Mm-hmm. Either of these methods will give you access to the planetary atmosphere, and that's what you want, because that tells you if the atmosphere is similar to ours or to Venus or completely different, and then if there are signatures of biology in it. So the really fascinating thing for me is really that we're finding uh, not just other continents, if you think about the old explorers, we're finding other worlds, and among those could be some worlds like ours and we're this generation that gets to do the first steps we're on these first steps and maybe if we're really lucky and we have earth-like planets nearby we don't know that yet but the probability <laughs> is high we could know in about 10 years just looking up at the sky and saying look this one just might have another earth like ours and i think that is pretty fascinating that we're going to be that generation that actually gets to do that
7: that's that's absolutely amazing <laughs> thank you so much for for stopping to talk to us and um, yeah thank you for being on the jobcast. Oh, my pleasure have fun
0: thanks for that christina in our final interview stewart spoke to dr michelle collins about dwarf roidal galaxies around andromeda and as we know from last month uh, andromeda is jen's favorite galaxy one of two one of two m87 is there as well okay so here's the interview
8: so this is Stuart Harper, and I'm here with Dr. Michelle Collins from NPIA.
7: Hello.
8: And Hi. she's going to tell us a little bit about her talk today, hopefully, on dwarf galaxies around Andromeda, That was right, isn't
7: it? Yeah, that's it. So mm-hmm. we've been looking at a lot of these dwarf-sphorodal galaxies, which are the faintest galaxies that we can actually observe. So compared to the normal galaxies that you see in, in the Hubble Space Telescope images, they're very unimpressive. You really can't see that they're there above the background. But we can find them uh, in wide field surveys. And we're very interested in following them up with spectroscopic instruments so we can measure the individual stars and then the dynamics of the system. Because they're so low luminosity, we can really use the stars to trace the dark matter potential. And of course, dark matter is this big unknown in astronomy. So everybody really wants to study it in as much detail as possible. And these are great little tools for doing that because they're such small-scale objects.
8: Perhaps you should... Explain a little bit about what a dwarf galaxy is. I mean, what sort of stars do you get in it? How many stars do you get compared to a normal galaxy? I mean, what makes it a dwarf in particular? I know.
7: Yeah, so, they're, I mean, compared to a normal galaxy, they're very, very faint, so very few number of stars. So typically in, say, the Milky Way, you have sort of 10 to the 10, 10 to the 11 stars uh, in the galaxy. Um, these galaxies can have as few as um, 100 stars or the the light equivalent to 100 suns anyway within the systems, and typically the stars are very old as well. So there's anything from a few hundred stars to up to sort of 10 million stars is typically what we see in these objects, so much smaller, much less luminous than the Milky Way and Andromeda and other large spiral galaxies, and very old stellar populations. It's thought that they formed very early on in the universe and haven't really done much evolving since. Because they're so low mass, they can't accrete much gas to themselves, and they are not able to bring in... The material they need to form stars. So they stopped evolving very early on and now in terms of their stellar components they look much like they would have done very early on.
8: Do they form at the same time as the host galaxy which they're orbiting? Um... Um,
7: So they form before typically. So so the big galaxies we see like the Milky Way and Andromeda are actually built up from much smaller galaxies. So people often refer to dwarf galaxies as building blocks of large galaxies although that's technically not correct because we still see them today. So they're very much like what the building block blocks would have been that made up galaxies like the Milky Way and Andromeda. But they've survived to the present day without being sort of mushed into larger galaxies.
8: So are we expecting them to at some point collide or are they in like a, a safe orbit around the hostages? So
7: some of them are on very on orbits that won't decay. So they'll be orbiting their hosts for a long time yet, but some of them we actually see are in the process of being completely torn apart, and then others are sort of in between, so they're, right now they're okay, but at some point they'll probably merge with their hosts. So, for example, in the Milky Way we have a very famous example of a dwarf galaxy being eaten essentially by the Milky Way, and that's the Sagittarius dwarf, and it's actually spreading its stars into a huge tidal stream feature across most of the galactic sky. It's very impressive. All of them eventually will end up right within the centre of their host halos and just be completely destroyed but it'll take them different amounts of time to do that.
8: So going back to sort of what you're talking a little bit more on about. So you mentioned dark matter at the beginning. <laughs> so how do these dwarf galaxies, what do they sort of tell us about dark matter?
7: Well, they let us really probe what's going on in the centre of the dark matter halos. So all galaxies are embedded, we think, in these very massive halos of dark matter. And typically they have much more mass in this dark matter than they do in the, in the matter that we can see. And in dwarf galaxies in particular, they're even more concentrated in the amount of dark matter they have. And because they're very small objects... Their stars sit right within the centre of this potential. And in the Milky Way, if you look right in the centre, there are so many stars that you can't neglect the stars and the gravity of the stars, for example. So you can't really get a handle on what the dark matter is doing. You can't. It's very difficult to separate it out from the stars that you're seeing. Whereas in these dwarf galaxies, the stars are essentially massless when you compare them to the dark matter. So their motions are entirely governed by the dark matter halo. And there are a lot of arguments between observers and theorists about exactly how the centre of a dark matter halo should look and the density profile as you go into the very centre. And this is very important because the simulations have so far been what's telling us the most about dark matter and if the observers are beginning to think that the halos in the centre look very different then that's leading to us having a problem with our our general understanding of how galaxies form. With dwarf galaxies we can really probe the central region and find out who's right in this argument. And that's what the end goal is, to see what dark matter is doing on very small scales. Okay,
8: so it's they're, they're useful tools just because you can sort of look straight into the middle of them because they're not very dense with other stellar mass.
7: Exactly, yeah, exactly.
8: Is there a reason why dwarf galaxies have ended up with so much more dark matter um, in their centres? I mean, on their formation? as opposed So to their... it's
7: just that they're less able to form stars than some of the bigger galaxies because... Okay. so. As the galaxy grows and gets more and more massive, obviously, the gravity of the system is much greater. So it can pull in more galaxies to itself, and those galaxies will contain gas and stars. So it will bring in a stellar component, but it will also bring in the gas, which is the material used to make stars. Uh, The dwarf galaxies are much less massive, so they have much less pull. Uh, Because they're less massive, they're much less able to bring in other galaxies, or even gas that's just lying around in the halos of other galaxies. So they can't continue forming stars. What we think happens is very, very early on when galaxies were first forming, they had some gas and they were able to make to go through one cycle of making stars. And then typically that produces a lot of material that you can then, it's from supernovae and stuff, you can then use that, reuse that material and make more stars and so on. But with these galaxies, the energy produced by these supernovae was sort of greater than the, the gravitational potential that they had, so they couldn't hold on to that gas. So they're just left over with some of the original population of stars they haven't yet gone supernova, and they haven't really been able to make much more since, because they haven't been able to hold on to that material that they need to make stars. So it's just much less dense, whereas if you have a much more massive halo, you can keep doing this and then bring in more and more material, so you end up with a much denser population of stars. Yeah.
8: Can the study of dwarf galaxies around Andromeda give us a clue to the sort of distribution of dark matter throughout the whole universe in general? I mean, can you extrapolate it to that, or...?
7: Yeah, so that's um, something that actually we're very interested in. So before we did our work on the Andromeda dwarf galaxies, really people had only looked at the dwarf galaxies of the Milky Way. And when we're using the motions of the stars to measure the masses of these halos, it seemed like they were all very, very similar masses within a given radius. So that was t- telling us maybe that all the dark matter halos that galaxies reside in initially are exactly the same. So if we understand then, say, one dark matter halo in detail, we can then say something about the original dark matter halos of all galaxies. And these will obviously change over time as galaxies interact, but it will give us sort of the original dark matter halo profile, which is something that we'd really want to know, because that's telling us about sort of the, the densities that dark matter clusters on and, you know, and forms galaxies on. But as you've only done that with one system, you kind of have the problem that the Milky Way system could be unusual or unique, so we're not really learning about galaxies as systems as a whole, just our own galaxy. So we've been using Andromeda because it's one of the only other systems that we can do this with in detail. So to make these measurements of the stars that you need to make, you have to have something that's relatively close by, otherwise we just don't have the telescopes that are capable of doing it beyond sort of the distance of Andromeda. So we're really pushing it with these systems as it is, but we can then study in the same detail the systems that we're studying in the Milky Way and compare, and then we have, rather than just one point, we have two points of reference to see if both sets of galaxies look the same. And if they did, then we could say, well, maybe that's how all galaxies look. Mm. I mean, it's still a bit... We only have two, but it's better than having just one. Yeah. So the idea was to compare the two populations and see if they're the same. And what we find is that, for the large part, they are. But in the Andromeda system, we have a few outliers. There are a couple of dwarf sterol galaxies in Andromeda where the central densities of their dark matter halos are lower, so they're less dense and less massive. And this is a bit troubling because we think there's a certain density limit for a dark matter halo, and if you go below that density limit, then you should never have been able to form stars in the first place because you can't cool the gas enough in order to turn it into stars. So if you go below a certain threshold in uh, central density, the dark matter halo should have remained dark. And the values that we measure for this density in in 3-dorsteroidals in Andromeda is actually lower than this threshold. So if they had always looked that way... It would mean that the dark matter halos that we we shouldn't be able to see them at all. Now we should, they should have no stars at all. But clearly we do see them. So that's telling us that there's either a problem in how we assume that stars form and how and we use physics to try and explain that. So that we hope that's not the case, mm. or that something has happened to these galaxies that has lowered their central densities so that now they look much less dense than they would have done when they first became galaxies. And we think it's probably this, the latter that is happening. And we think it's to do with the interactions of these galaxies and the host galaxies like Andromeda. So Andromeda obviously has a much larger mass than these galaxies. It has many more stars and much more dark matter overall. So uh, the gravitational effects of that can remove some of the dark matter and stars from the, the galaxies that are orbiting it. And as such, that could lower the central densities of these dark matter halos. And I think that's what this data is telling us. And it's a very important effect, because there are a number of people, I think, that study dwarf spiral galaxies, and they make the assumption that they look exactly the same now, as they did when they were first formed. And then they use the results that we're seeing now to say this is how galaxies form overall and this is what the first galaxies sort of look like and to derive you know information about how stars are formed over time. Mm. And I think what these results are telling us is that we can't assume these galaxies look exactly the same as they did when they were first formed. And we need to understand the effect that their host galaxy is having on them uh, better. And that's pretty much what we've been working on.
8: So does that mean there is sort of... St- is the stellar material from the dwarf galaxies are being stripped off? Or is it the dark matter as well? Or so it's I mean, everything. So, is it, so it's changing everything. So, everything.
7: so it tends to be that because so the dark matter halos are much more massive that okay. the dark matter gets stripped off first and then the stars. But eventually the stars will get stripped out too.
8: So do you see... Stars actually moving between the galaxies then as well? Actually, um, the, can you see those? Is that possible? Is that, It is
7: for some objects, yes. So like the Sagittarius dwarf in our galaxy, we can see the stars being stripped off in our halo. So they're being smeared out across most of the galactic sky, which is pretty exciting. And then in Andromeda, there are a few cases where we can see very beautiful streams of stars as well being pulled up, sort of feeding into the, into the host galaxy, into Andromeda from many different directions. And in some cases we can see the progenitor, so the, the dwarf galaxy that's being stripped, but in other cases we can't, so it's uh, a lot of people are hunting for those as well. It's harder to see them in Andromeda in general because they're, they're very low surface brightness. So even though we have this very deep survey, the PANDAS survey, which is a, a large-scale photometric survey of the entire Andromeda system, it, doesn't, it goes deep enough to resolve the very bright streams, but there are a lot that we wouldn't be able to detect, I think. So it's, it's often hard to see the effects of stars being stripped out unless it's a very violent case, like the Sagittarius stream in our galaxy.
8: So what about the future? I mean, you said that you can only really do it on Andromeda on our own galaxy. Mm-hmm. What do we need to be able to go to further galaxies? Is that even possible?
7: So there are actually a few telescopes that are being built over the next decade that should help us be able to push out further in distance. So there are these 30-metre telescopes that are being built. There's one being built by ESO, the Extremely Large Telescope, and there are also a couple that will be built by the United States, and some other people are involved in those collaborations as well. These telescopes will allow us to push out much further in distance, so we can hopefully go out into the local universe, rather than just the local group. We can go out to a few megaparsecs and study galaxies and their satellite distributions and properties. So that's hopefully with those telescopes we'll be able to push out further but at the moment we're just limited by the telescopes that we have pretty much.
8: Is there a time on that? I mean how long do you think it'll be before you start getting those surveys coming in? Is it decades
3: or?
7: So the I can't remember the exact when they're exactly building the instruments but over the next decade, um, next decade. I think the, the 30 meter telescopes should be up so I think by 2020 I think most of them are planned to be okay. operational, but I, could, I wouldn't guarantee that date. Oh, yeah, I suppose, yeah. <laughs> You're not building them, so. <laughs> fair but, yeah, so I think it's supposed to be over the next decade that we're starting to see these 30-metre telescopes come online, hopefully. So. Okay. so that'll be a very exciting time for all of science, really. Yeah, <laughs>
8: be really good. Okay, well, I think we can leave it there. We've okay. pretty much talked about everything. So thank you very much. Thank you. And uh, goodbye.
0: Bye. Thanks, Nash, do now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other things we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. Now Kat, what odd and end do you have for us in this show?
9: Uh, my story is about the results of an experiment that demonstrates that space flight slows the ageing process. Uh, And this experiment was carried out by an international group of researchers who shot a group of a particular unpronounceable type of worm (laughs) into orbit on the International Space Station and then compared their development with that of a control group on Earth. And what they found was that the space worms live longer and had lower levels of this protein that's associated with ageing. And they put this down, this increased longevity, down to the low gravity, which they say may have switched off certain genes connected with the ageing process. Yeah. I
2: always thought that being in space was quite bad for you, like, because there's no gravity, so you sort of get muscle wastage and things like that.
9: Yeah, well, they talked about that in this paper. They talked about, I mean, they demonstrated that um, the muscle shrinks, but that it ages better. So I think that they, they made the point that the muscle. Shrinkage is just really down to, well, you're not having to use them as much, so it's not um, a pathological thing. So it's not dangerous, so to speak. I suppose you could do a bit of
1: exercise or something.
9: Yeah, well, they do,
2: <laughs> don't they, on the ISS? They have quite yeah. a rigorous regime of exercise if they're going to be on there for a long time.
9: Yeah. I
1: think. So well, but... I guess this in, this this kind of research is going to become more and more prominent as NASA and people start thinking about sending astronauts out to Mars and on longer space flights.
9: Yeah, well that was the um, that's why they, they were doing the research to have a look at how long missions in space might affect the human body um, but I think it's quite a nice nice benefit maybe. Yeah. Yeah, maybe yeah, Maybe living on Mars would, would increase our lifespans and...
1: Well they, they talk about having missions to Mars and one option would be that you go there and you don't come back
0: I really do not like that idea
1: but then not only if do you go there and you don't come back you also live longer
9: if that's the payoff, it might so be a good way to convince people to go
1: yeah and then once you're on Mars because that's talking about the low gravity mm. in space but even once you're on Mars the gravity is lower so even once like people establish like colonies or whatever there then those people would live longer that would be kind of cool
9: would it convince you to go to Mars, Jen?
1: maybe, if I had Being able to go as a child and then be a teenager for longer, I think, definitely. Teenage years were fun.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But this would put lots of um, de-aging anti-wrinkle cream probably out of business. (laughs) I think it's quite a drastic measure,
9: really. I think (laughs) I'd prefer to buy a pot of cream than... I
0: don't know. Unless it's something you wouldn't have to pack on the journey to Mars. This is true.
2: We know you're leaving Manchester, but this is going a bit far. <laughs> All the way to Mars, just to, expen- to extend your lifespan a bit
1: yeah
9: I think the thing that I really liked about this story, apart from it, it you know being interesting for planning purposes for future space missions is that this kind of research is also uh has applications for medicine on earth so it was a although it was a, an experiment done in space, it has you know implications for things outside of astronomy.
0: Some I guess a lot more work will be done on that protein that stops the aging process, oh yeah, <laughs> let's get lots of air uh, science on that, and it's definitely not due to the fact that they're going a little bit faster orbiting around the earth then um it's just the reduced gravity yeah it's it's
9: purely the effect on the the effects of low gravity on the genes.
1: I mean you'd have to be going pretty close to the speed of light to see those kinds of effects, yeah, I think that's pub- the international Space Station is not no. <laughs> no.
2: Well, I have an odd end about Pluto, which, uh, since being demoted from a planet to a dwarf planet in 2006, has actually been doing rather well, and it's just been announced this month that it has a fifth moon around it. A fifth? A fifth moon. Not just one, which was discovered in 1978, or the two that were discovered in 2006, or the one that was discovered last year. Now there's another one. Although it's pretty small, it's apparently an irregularly shaped lump. (laughs) Around six to fifteen miles across, so I guess that's because it's irregular, and I also think it's quite hard for them to get a good handle on how big it is because mm. they they use Hubble, the Hubble Space Telescope, to find it. But I think it's just a kind of a dot, a point for Hubble, so they have to look at how bright it is and try and work out how how big it is, basically. But it's an interesting one because it's also the second closest moon to Pluto after Charon, which is the big moon that you tend to know about. Um, so I don't know if it's in the same plane or whether the gravity is just not strong enough for it to interact with the other moons but it's quite interesting that they're all in a stable configuration because these five moons apparently are much more compactly um, distributed than moons around most of the other planets in the solar system.
9: If Pluto is not a planet anymore, can it technically have moons?
1: Are they like dwarf moons, minor moons? I think
2: they're still (laughs) moons around dwarf planets. Also, I shouldn't have said the other planets because that implies that Pluto is a planet. Of course. Um, I think that the IOU was too tired after defining what a planet was to try and define what a moon was. So it's a moon of a dwarf planet, I think. Whether that makes it a dwarf moon, I don't know.
0: But surely that implies the moons have to be very small as well.
2: Well, yeah, they'd have to be smaller than the planet.
1: It's also interesting about Sharon, isn't it? Because there are some people who think that it that should also be a dwarf planet rather than a moon of Pluto because it's big enough that they're not quite, you know, it's not properly orbiting around Pluto. They're both, uh, as with. All two-body systems—they're orbiting round a uh, centre of mass—but that centre of mass is actually quite far in in most things. It's outside Pluto's yeah.
2: radius. That's the thing. But yeah, that's that's a point that will maybe settled in the future definition of
0: a moon. I definitely don't don't want to be involved in that debate. We still have to <laughs>
1: define exoplanets, don't we? Like the proper the IAU definition of planets only extends to our solar system.
2: Yeah, it's too difficult after that. Well, this moon—it makes me wonder where. Pluto's moons have all come from. I mean, were they captured from the Kuiper Belt? How come it's got so many moons for such a little dwarf planet?
1: Maybe it's like, um, you know how we think that our moon formed from an impact with the Earth of a similar size, something that was maybe the size of Mars, impacted and then some of that got kind of squished onto the Earth and then the rest of it formed the moon. Maybe there were two impacts and one survived as Pluto and then the other was made the moon.
2: Well, maybe this impact have fragments that, because the gravity wasn't as strong didn't become part of the biggest moon who knows who knows it's fun to speculate isn't it when we have no idea <laughs> well, the reason they've really been looking for these moons is because there's a probe called new horizons which is on its way to pluto and is going to get there in 2015 and hubble is trying to m- make sure it knows about all the um, hazards near to pluto so that it doesn't happen to bump into one of them
0: i don't think bumping into them will be any good so definitely it's not like a deep impact mission we would like to avoid them. But we're thinking about how you would change course of the satellite. Well, apparently they can
2: make small adjustments. So they have to make them far enough in advance that then they can just nudge New Horizons course a little bit so that it would then miss any potential hazards. But you can't sort of do it really quickly. You can't just do a handbrake turn in space, I think, at least not with not with New Horizons.
1: But even if you it could move quite quickly, you've still got to account for the delay in when you send the signal to New Horizons to say you should move a bit. Because it's so far away now that it will take quite a long time.
2: Yeah, it's a few hours, isn't it? Uh, Yeah. Well, Pluto's just getting more and more interesting, so not being a planet anymore doesn't seem to have hurt it very much.
0: Well, it's gained four new moons since it been demoted. Oh, that's one consolation prize, I guess.
1: And Libby's probably going to shout at me because I don't have an odd end because I wasn't planning on being here.
2: And we all know you're not that odd when it's not really the end. Mark, no, i good. That's just awful. Fine, you are odd and it is the end, whichever
0: way you like it. <laughs> I definitely prefer
1: you are odd. Thanks.
0: Thanks definitely guys. not the end. Really going to miss you.
7: You'll
0: we'll be back. Now for something you will have to wait till 2015 for, Mark talks to Ian MacDonald, who answers your astronomical questions.
2: Our first question comes by email from Scott McKee. He asks... If you have telescopes that can see other galaxies millions and millions of miles away, then with the Moon being so close, can't you get brilliant close-up pictures of the Moon?
10: Actually, no, we can't. And before I explain the reasons why, we need to know a little bit about angles. Now, us astronomers work with very small angles when measuring the size of things in the sky. We take a degree and we split it up into 60 arc minutes, and then split an arc minute into 60 arc seconds. The Moon's about half a degree across, so it's about 1800 arc seconds. And at the distance to the Moon, each arc second works out to be about a kilometre across. So how small an object can we see with a telescope? Firstly, we're limited by the Earth's atmosphere. Now the movement of the air in the atmosphere distorts the light that we receive from space, and this is what caused the stars to twinkle in the first place. And it can be a real pain for astronomers because it makes all our pictures a bit blurry. Even from the best sites on Earth, we're limited to about half an arc-second, or about 500 metres across on the Moon. We can get around this by fancy electronics and so forth, but even the best telescopes we can use only see things that are about a tenth of an arc-second across, or 100 metres, on the Moon. Now, that's 100 metres from the best telescopes that we have. Now, if you want to have some context for that, the Apollo orbiters captured images at about 30 metres resolution. And earlier this year, the Chinese lunar orbiter Chang'e-2 returned images at about 7 metres resolution. So it turns out it's just a lot better to send a spacecraft to the Moon to map it. So what do we get from big telescopes if it's not just to see small details? Well, it's not all about the resolution, although the high resolutions that we do have mean that we can detect some pretty fantastic things. But what a big telescope really means is more light. Some of the faintest things that we look at are over a billion times fainter than you can see with your eyes. So, while we'd like a telescope a few billion times bigger than the human eye, we've got to settle with the biggest ones that we've got today, which are a few million times as big. So even with these big telescopes, our real limitation is just the fact that we're trying to peer into the darkness to see faint, fuzzy blobs.
2: So sometimes it's not all about the spatial resolution or the smallest thing that you can see, then?
10: Not always, but it does help sometimes.
2: The next question is another email from Les French. Who says? As I was looking at the night sky, a dim star suddenly became extremely bright, and then suddenly disappeared, a bit like a light bulb blowing. Could you please give me some further information?
10: Now, nearly everyone has a story about something in the night sky they couldn't explain. Even I do. But uh, one of the conversations astronomers frequently have at those kind of parties is inevitably something similar to this. Almost every time, no one remembers enough information for us to answer it. Now. Les, on the other hand, has included a lot of information about what he saw, including the direction, altitude, and time. Even then, there's several possibilities. However, most times you see something like this in the sky, they turn out to be either a satellite, or a meteor, or an aeroplane. Now, you may laugh that someone doesn't recognise an aeroplane, but when it's dark, and it's close to the horizon, and heading towards you, it's not always easy. I've got the unfortunate situation of living at the end of the landing path from Manchester Airport, often the only way I can tell something's a plane is when it turns to land, and it starts to get dimmer and starts flashing its landing lights. More commonly, however, something unexplained like this might be a meteor. Most meteors are just momentary flashes of light, but some can be big enough to last for several seconds. They often produce bursts of light as they fragment, and this can produce very vivid colours as they charge the surrounding atmosphere. Now, these typically move across the sky very fast, unless, of course, they're heading towards you. These can often be tied to various meteor showers, but the biggest ones are sporadic and can happen at any time. So if you see something that's bright and changes suddenly, um, and is very colourful, then this can often be a meteor. But quite often man-made satellites can also spook people. Satellites come in all shapes and sizes and can do some very funny things. Generally the tracks slowly across the sky brightening and fading as they go. Some satellites, like the Iridium satellites, can catch the sun at just the right angle and they can outshine any planet or star in the sky for a second or two. There's something quite special about that when you're not expecting it. Satellites can be easily tracked using a variety of publicly available tools, which we'll try and put on the website for you. But we can't help Les here because we need to know where he lives. And of course there's everything else, just about anything can look funny in the dark especially if it changes and you're not looking at it directly to begin with. And this can be a particular problem if it's cloudy too and things disappear and reappear from behind clouds. So if you ever find yourself in this kind of situation, write down as much information as you can. Where were you? What were you doing? When the sky was it, especially compared to particular stars you know of? What it looked like, and what it did. Now send that information to your local friendly astronomer and he'll promptly tell you that they have no idea what it was you saw. Whatever it is, though, there's probably a million and one explanations you can invoke for considering little green men. So I'm sorry, Les, but we've no idea what it was you saw.
2: <laughs> this does sound quite familiar, actually. Yes. Sometimes <laughs> you see things and the thing is you can't really tell how far away they are or how high they are necessarily because it could be a bright thing far away or a nearby thing that's not so bright.
10: Yeah, I mean, there's people who come back and say, oh, it was the size of an aeroplane. But that really depends on how far
2: away it was. So there we go, unidentified flying objects might be a little more mundane than we thought. The third question is another email from Pat O'Grady, and it's about exoplanets. For exoplanets, the search is to find stars with planets. But why not start from the other way around? Why is a star without planets not the exception rather than the rule?
10: Well, quite simply, when we look for planets, it's a lot easier to find a planet that is there than rule out an infinite number of possible planets that could exist. For almost every star, proving there isn't a planet going around is currently impossible. So the truth of the matter is that we don't really know whether having planets is normal for a star or not. We also don't really know how many planets is typical number for a star, we don't even know what a typical planet looks like. But we're getting closer to finding out, thanks to a number of projects, particularly the Kepler space mission. From these projects, for example, we know that about 10% of stars have a hot gas giant orbiting very close to them. We also know that small planets, like the Earth, are more common than big ones, like Jupiter. And from these observations we can estimate that about 40% of stars have planets. But that's really only based on the giant planets, like Jupiter and Saturn. We'd only really know of a handful of rocky planets like the Earth, because they're really difficult to detect. We simply don't know how many planets there are, The current estimates suggest that most stars indeed do have one planet about the size of the Earth. So watch this space seems like planetless stars are indeed the exceptions. And there's many ways that stars can lose planets, so understanding why some stars have planets and some don't will ultimately tell us a lot about how stars formed interact with each other.
2: It's really just an emerging field, isn't it, detecting planets around stars, that's the thing. It's, it's, it's quite difficult to do, and, well, if you go back about 20 years, it just wasn't even possible.
10: Certainly, and 20 years ago we didn't even know that there were planets outside our solar system at all. And uh, certainly in the last few years, we've gone from having a handful of planets to having nearly a thousand now.
2: And the last question comes from Twitter. Susan Kelly says, Would a star five times more massive than our Sun exert the same gravity as a much more compact neutron star of the same mass?
10: First of all, a very minor technicality here. We can't get a neutron star that's five times the mass of the Sun be so dense that would collapse into a black hole. The most massive one we know of is about two times the mass of the Sun. So we'll rephrase the question. Would a two solar mass star exert the same gravity as a two solar mass neutron star? The answer is yes, it would. Any two objects of the same mass will have the same gravity. But we need to be a little careful about what we mean when we say gravity here. What we're talking about is the amount an object will pull on another object. So the Earth doesn't care if it's orbiting the Sun orbiting a neutron star of the same mass. It'll orbit just the same. You might care, of course, if the Sun suddenly turned a neutron star, but at least we'd be able to test some really cool physics before we died a horrible, horrible death. Now, what the smaller radius the neutron star does mean, however, is it's got much higher surface gravity than a star of the same mass. And if you are able to stand on the surface of these two objects, I really wouldn't recommend it. Then you'd experience gravity very differently. For example, if you were to stand on the typical two solar mass star you'd experience gravity that was about 30 times the gravity on Earth. However, since the star doesn't have a solid surface, you'd just plunge to a rather different, fiery, unpleasant death. Now, if you were able to stand a two-solar-mass neutron star, you'd briefly experience something a little different. Now, unlike normal stars, neutron stars do have a solid surface. While a typical two-solar-mass star would be over half a million miles across, A two-solar mass neutron star might only be 20 miles across, or even less. And this gives us a phenomenally powerful surface gravity, nearly a trillion times that of the Earth. If you were able to stand one, you'd instantly get made into an atomic pancake on the surface. So in short, two objects of the same mass will always have the same gravity. However, if one's a lot denser, then it allows other objects on the surface of them to experience gravity up close. Oh, and the universe is a really nasty place filled with a million interesting different ways to die.
2: (laughs) This always puts me in mind of black holes a bit, because sometimes people say, well, don't black holes just suck everything in? And I sort of say, well, if you're far enough away from them, then no, but you can get close to them because they're so compact. And if you do get really close, that's when you're in trouble.
10: it's actually really difficult to get that close to a black hole unless you actually get aimed directly for it.
2: Thank you very much for all the questions. And if you want to get in touch with any more questions, then you can do so via the usual channels email, forum, twitter, Facebook, or good old snail mail.
0: thanks for that, Ian. Now we get to the feedback section of the show in the post, we had a postcard whoop, I love postcards um from Bill Keck, who apparently I'm orbiting from a, a previous <laughs> yes, <laughs> a previous you remember.
2: you're his planet <laughs>
0: I'm his planet, yes. And uh, Bill Keck says, uh, thanks for bringing ALMA to the Royal Society. Uh, good to see you all.
2: Yes, we went to the Royal Society and we did a stand all about the ALMA telescope. And we also met up with Bill in the pub.
0: And there was also, similar to, like, Herschel Telescope was there. And there was a really interesting stand on cosmic rays. And they had this brilliant cloud chamber where you could see the cosmic ray particles impacting. You could see their paths. You could see really, really big tracks for some particles and really small tracks for the ones. And I thought that was amazing. So if you get a chance to go to the Royal Society's uh, Summer Science Exhibition, do so next year.
1: On the forum, we had a message from Paul Gordon, who said that he's been listening to the JOGcast for a couple of months and working his way through the back catalogue. He said the JOGcast is a vital part of his driving listening experience and thanks and keep up all the good work. So thank you, Paul, and we hope... Um, in response to that, that you keep up the good work on the forum because everyone should post on our forum because
0: it's ace.
2: And on Twitter, thank you for all the retweets and the Follow Fridays.
0: And if you want to get in touch, you can do so by the website at www.jodcast.net, on the forum at
1: forum.jodcast.net, on Twitter at twitter.com/jodcast,
2: on Facebook at facebook.com/jodcast.
0: On YouTube at
1: youtube.com slash
0: Jogcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash Jogcast. And don't forget you can send us post. The address is on the website. So that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks to Kim Mans for the job bite. Thanks to Dr. Michelle Collins, Dr. Fraser Clark and Dr. Lisa Kaltenega for the interviews. The editors were Dan Thornton, George Brendo, Mark Perver and Christina Smith. The producers were Dan Thornton and Christina Smith. And until next time... Chod on! <laughs>